Now, for everyone else, a very unusual message today, I suppose unusual. I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 6, if you have your Bible, Mark chapter 10 and verse 6. About a year ago, a little over a year ago now, I heard and read some profound messages on marriage and why we should not try to redefine marriage. Uh, There is a crisis in our homes and marriages, even in our Christian homes. And marriage, uh, as a divine institution, is under attack. We're in a cultural war. We're in a spiritual war uh, of epic proportions. And and many of us have seen society embrace what it repudiated for many generations and reject uh, what it embraced for millennia. Now, what I've seen in my, during my lifetime is the devaluing of a traditional home, a dad, a mom, children united together, pulling together, working problems out when they come, because how many know that every marriage is going to have problems from time to time? Every single marriage will have issues because we're people and because your spouse is not perfect, right? And neither are you. That's exactly right. Neither am I, neither are any of us. So roughly one out of two marriages in the United States uh, suffers through a divorce. So traditional marriage is broken, and people choose living together over having a a traditional wedding. Uh, And now pop culture wants to interject gender as irrelevant. And I've heard the argument made. You've probably heard this too, maybe even on the evening news, since traditional marriage is so messed up. How can we do any worse with doing marriage differently or even doing away with marriage? Even doing away with marriage. Our young people have been won over to a false philosophy. And here's the false philosophy. It doesn't matter what someone does as long as they love each other. How can that possibly affect or hurt you? Now, our nation, along with too much of the world, has swallowed a a duo of false um, philosophies, that of pluralism and relativism. Now, pluralism, and this is just kind of an introduction here, uh, uh, pluralism means there are a lot of explanations for any idea, including the idea of God. There are a lot of explanations for them, and there is no one right way. That's what pluralism teaches. Uh, A dictionary definition is a theory or a system that recognizes more than one ultimate principle. Therefore, In pluralism, strictly speaking, according to definition, there are no absolutes. Now, the obvious is overlooked because that is an absolute statement. When you say there are no absolutes, that is an absolute statement, but that doesn't bother people today. They just ignore it. Now, the the definition for relativism is that doctrine... Uh, the, the, the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context are not absolute. So all systems and all concepts are equally true and valid at the same time. If it works for you, it's fine. If you're a Buddhist, if you're a Christian, if you're um, a Muslim, if you are an atheist, and if it works for you, then they're all equally uh, true. That's just fine. But that's an impossibility. Pantheism believes that God is in everything, everywhere. Um, Atheism believes that God doesn't exist. God is in every person, rock, and tree. God is aloof somewhere far away. God is personal. God is impersonal. God is good. God is not good. All of those are philosophies of religion. They can't all be true at the same time. So here we are. We've lost a generation or two, but we cannot give up battling for the truth. So what is the truth? What does God through God's Word, teach about marriage because, I don't know about you, but for me, the final authority of all truth is the Word of God. This is a core value because, really, 
This is all we know about how to go to heaven. This is all we know about Jesus Christ. This is all we know about the person of God. This is all we know about how to have a good marriage. This is all we know right here. The rest of it is conjecture and people's ideas. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, and I'm going to read from the NLT, which says, But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So from this one short passage, God reveals five unchangeable convictions about marriage. And again, this is all introduction. First of all, the first uh, unchangeable conviction is gender is God's idea. Gender is God's idea. It's not a psychological construct. It's not a sociological idea. It's not a personal preference. God made us male or female. We fit together. Secondly, marriage is God's idea. The, I, I mean, you know, Adam and Eve were brought together as, the Bible says, man and wife, or male and female, husband and wife. He defined it, not the state, not us. Third thing is, sex was created for marriage, for connection, for procreation, and as far as connection is concerned, sexual union releases oxytocin in both the husband and the wife. It also is released when a mom is nursing a newborn baby. And this oxytocin creates a bond between people. When two become one, they become bonded together. And sex is for connection. There's no such thing as safe sex because there is no birth control device or whatever that can prevent a broken heart or a ripped apart life. Number four, marriage is a union of a man and a woman. Number five, marriage is to be permanent. Leave and cleave. Leave father and mother and cleave. And this idea of cleave is, is, to, become one, is, to, be, is to become one in, in such a way that it can never be taken apart again. I, I don't know. The, the best way I can uh, describe it is, is plywood. If you're familiar with what plywood is, and I don't know if this is plywood or not. I think not. Uh, but plywood is a series of... of veneers that are glued together. They're separate veneers, but when they're glued together and compressed, they become bonded in such a way they can never be taken apart the same way again. If you've ever tried to split plywood and, and back into the original veneer pieces, it never works. There's always rips, tears, and breaks, and that's the way it is. When marriages fail, there's always rips, tears, and, and hurts that, that happened because there was this leaving and cleaving principle that took place. So therefore, based upon this introductory word so far, there are six purposes that I found for marriage in the Bible. Six purposes for marriage. There may be more, but these six we can identify. First of all, it's for the elimination of loneliness. By the way, I didn't leave any blanks in the outline because I want you to have all <laughs> I want you to have it there. Uh, and, and to be able to keep this. It's for the elimination of loneliness. Genesis 1.18 says in, in LT, when the Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. You know why he said that, ladies? Because we're pitiful. <laughs> Guys are stinking pitiful. You know, for a guy, it's like when, when you, I mean, I saw something on the internet this week. When he gets a cold, it's like it's awful. It's, it's the end of the world. He can't stand it. He's going to die. He feels awful. He's miserable. When a, when a woman gets a cold, it's a cold. You know, I mean, we, we're just absolutely pitiful. So it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him, God said. Now, everything created 
that God created was good. Every time he created something, he said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. But what was not good was that all the animals had their counterparts, their mates, their companions, their completers, but Adam didn't, and that wasn't good. And so God gave him a holy remedy. He gave him a woman. Paul explains that not everyone's created for marriage. doesn't mean if you're not married that you're somehow uh, incomplete. Uh, it, it simply means, uh, Paul said, if you're going to be married, married in, be married in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 7, regarding the question you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. That flies in the face of the culture today, right? This is my body. I'll do what I want with it. The Bible says the wife gives her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. So there's a mutual, uh, reciprocal, uh, I am yours, you are me. The, the last song, Milo, that you guys sang uh, talks about giving your all, giving your feet, giving your hands, giving your, your heart, giving everything, and that's what we ought to do. Marriage is not a 50-50 situation because if it's 50-50, that leaves another 50-50, that leaves another 100% somewhere else. Marriage is 100% giving 100% to the other person. So the authority is over, uh, over the husband's wife should be the wife's. The authority over the wife's wife should be the husband. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer afterward. You should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this, Paul said, as a concession, not as a commandment, but I wish everyone were single just as I. Why? Because in the culture in which he lived, there was persecution. It was really difficult uh, to, to be able to take care of a family in the midst of all of what was going on in the first century of Christianity. But I wish everyone were single just as I. Yet, each person has a special gift of, from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. In Matthew 19, 12, some from birth seemingly Never give marriage the thought. Others never get asked or accepted, and some decide not to get married for kingdom reasons. But if you're capable of growing into the largest of marriage, do it. So, so it's an option. It's not a command that you have to be married, but if you are married, then you need to be married in the way that God says. And one of the purposes for it is to combat loneliness. Loneliness can be devastating for those who are not called to be celibate. Deployments, you, you men and women that go on deployments, that's got to be a very, very difficult. I think the military is, thank God for the military, but it's tough on homes. And you who are in the military know that. You know that better than I. And so you've got to double, up, double down on, on making sure that, that you do everything God's way because deployments can, and, and a, a moment of loneliness, things can happen that will affect you for the rest of your lives or, or affect you and your marriage in, in really great ways. Um, broken families uh, can lead to great loneliness. I know people who've gone through divorces and then they're just in abject depression because they're so lonely. Desertion. Being left and, and, and leaving all the, uh, the emotional trauma that comes with being left behind when the mate has gone off with someone else, perhaps, or the loss of mate to death. And many of you have been through that. I have seen people, in particular men, rush into a second or third marriage trying to find what they had before and making some huge mistakes 
in doing that. So one of the purposes of marriage is for to combat loneliness. Secondly, for the expression and act of a sexual relationship. In Genesis 2, 24 and 25, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, joined in his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Sex is not dirty. The corruption of sex is dirty and sinful and wrong. But sex as God has prescribed it is wonderful. And I just have a question for you. When's the last time you saw on television a TV show where it was implied that a loving husband and his wife were engaged physically? It always seems to be you know, boyfriend and girlfriend or acts of adultery or more so as time goes on, homosexuals coupling. But God gave us marriage, ladies, guys. God gave us marriage, not pre, not extramarital, but he gave us marriage for the purpose of having a blessed sexual relationship and all other expressions outside of God's parameters result in guilt, shame, complication, and judgments. It is not worth it. I love that illustration of, you know, I think I shared this with you once already, but a store, we were, I was just yesterday, went to Toys R Us parking lot, and, and toy, kids love Toys R Us, uh, and, and I think sometimes if we could go to a Sins R Us store and see what the real price is <laughs> for our sin, you know, Sins R Us, you go in there and uh, here's, it says, if I steal something, it's going to cost me, ooh, I don't know that I want to do that. If I commit adultery, it's going to cost me, oh, that's too much to pay. If I, if I, if I lie and cheat and steal, oh, this is... If we really knew the full cost of sin, it would certainly uh, result in, I think, a change of attitude. So, one of the purposes of marriage is to combat loneliness. Secondly, for the biblical and God-created way of expressing uh, ourselves sexually and having the, the kind of relationship that God can bless that is intimate, that is wonderful, that bonds two people together. Number three, for the multiplication of the human race. Genesis 1.28, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals that scurry upon the ground. By the way, of all the commandments that God has given, this is the only one we've actually obeyed. Be fruitful and multiply. Seven and a half billion people now. So, you know, we're one for however many commandments there are. Uh, oh, and and, and redefining marriage between a, to be a, between a man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot accomplish this purpose, not in a traditional way, obviously. Redefining marriage to include same-sex couples defeats this purpose entirely. Number four, and this is a big one, for the protection and education of our children. The home is created. The, the, the God in his wisdom put together a man and a woman, not just, not just a man, not just a woman. Although, thank God for you single parents who take on that responsibility and do such an incredible job. I, I, can't, I cannot imagine how tough it is to try to be that one parent fulfilling both sides of this because the, the, the role is so demanding. The roles are so demanding. And, and God put together in his wisdom a man and a woman for the protection and education of the children. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, and you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Teach them what God has to say. Teach them God's word. Live it before them 
Teach it to them from the Word of God. Spend time with them. Pray with them. Build into their lives the principles that will make them successful in God's eyes. Listen to this. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. God, not you, made marriage. God, not you, made marriage. His Spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does He want from a marriage? Children of God. That's what. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat. On your spouse. By the way, cheating on your spouse doesn't mean you consummated a physical relationship at some point. Cheating on your spouse means that you have entertained the idea. It means that you have, you have, you know, some huge number. I don't, I can't remember the statistic right now, but some huge percentage of men are involved with pornography. More and more women as well, but a huge percentage of men are involved with pornography. And I, and I want you to know that that will captivate you. That will plant seeds of destruction uh, within your own marriage. So you can cheat on your spouse. You can cheat on your future spouse by being involved with pornography, which will destroy you from the inside out. So, so man and woman come together. They have children. And one of their great responsibilities is to protect their children because why? Children are vulnerable. Did you see in the news, I think it was yesterday, where they found a little baby, newborn baby that was born, uh, that was then buried alive and found, by the way, buried alive. They, they don't know the details, obviously, yet, but there, there was a policeman holding this new baby that had been buried alive. Babies are vulnerable. In the womb, out of the womb, babies are vulnerable. They can't exist without protection. This idea of, well, if they're not viable, then they're not really a baby. If they're, if they're in the womb, they, they can't live with outside the mom, so they're not really a baby. Hey, a little baby can't live without protection either and provision. That little newborn infant, if it had been left there out in that field or wherever it was found, do you think it would have lived? No way. So protect because children are valuable. They cannot exist without protection, whether in the womb or out. Secondly, to educate. And here's the prescribed way of educating in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where Moses said, listen, Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them, listen to this, when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up, tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And, and the, the Jews who took this literally would write verses and scriptures on pieces of leather, and sometimes would put them, make them little scrolls, put them in a little box, put them on a piece of leather, and would tie it around their heads so they literally had the Word of God right here. They would tie them on the back of their hands so when they, whatever they were doing, they would see there's the Word of God. They would put, and you're probably familiar with the practice that a lot of Jewish homes will have a little, uh, and I can't remember the name, I always get this confused. What's that thing called to put on the doorpost that have this, the, the commandments, the, the, the law inside? Mezuzah. Mezuzah, thank you. I always say Medusa, but I know that's not right. So, you know, Mezuzah, and, and they, they have it there, and they oftentimes will 
kiss it as they come or go or recognize it somehow. This mezuzah, right? Uh, so it's the Word of God. Uh, and, and they were supposed to repeat it. The idea of repetition and, and, and putting, planting the Word of God in their kids' hearts and minds and talk about it when they're at home and talk about it when you're in a car going to the grocery store or on your way to church or wherever it is or when you're going to bed at night to sit down and, and pray with them and, and go over the Word of God with them and, and help them understand some of life's situations. And when you get up in the morning to be able to, uh, to greet them and, and, and to plant scriptures in their mind, and uh, that's the idea of, of educating, not just protecting them, but protecting their never-dying souls by educating them in the things of God. My hat goes off to you homeschoolers because you, you have that benefit and that privilege of doing that all day long for your kids. So marriage is the building of a biblical home. Biblical families, uh, biblical homes are, are the building blocks of society, and that's one reason, in my opinion, why this country is so messed up today. Because our homes are so messed up today. Society or government, if it functions correctly, protects its citizens. And, and the building blocks of government are the homes. And, and if biblical families break down, the nation breaks down. What's the fifth purpose for perfection, uh, for, for a biblical marriage? For the perfection of our character. God is building us. God is working us. You remember those buttons that went around years ago? I can't remember how many letters it had, but it stood for be patient. God is not finished with us yet. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. Yeah, a few do. Okay. And, and we used to wear those buttons, and it had the first letter of each, be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. And people say, what in the world are all those? What does that mean? And you tell them, be patient. God's, well, God is working on us every single day. We never, ever arrive in this life. If you're waiting to the point when you get perfect to join the church, you will never join the church. If you wait until you're perfect to be baptized, you will never be baptized. If you wait until you're perfect to receive, to receive Christ as your Lord and Master, you will never receive Him as your Lord and Master. He is constantly working on us. 1 Corinthians 7, 14, the unbelieving husband shares. This is a kind of a difficult passage, and I'm reading it in the message translation. The unbelieving husband shares to an extent in the holiness of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is likewise touched by the holiness of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be left out. As it is, they are also included in the spiritual purposes of God. What in the world does that mean? That means the, the husband and wife in a, in a marriage help each other to mature in the Lord. And marriage is not just to make you happy, but it's to make you holy. Marriage is to help you become holy, dedicated unto the Lord. The, the children of such parents then benefit greatly. You all know, and maybe you are someone who was not brought up in a Christian home. And you know some of the problems that can come about with drug use, alcoholism, abuse of all kinds. So people, children born to Christian parents who are practicing Christian principles, uh, they, have a, they have a whole big head start on the rest of the kids who, who are not. In marriage, we learn unselfishness. You who are going to be married someday, maybe pretty soon, you know, you've been doing your own thing for however many years. You've been, all of a sudden, here comes this other person who's been doing their own thing however many years, and you come together and you say, whoa, what's going on? 
down here. It's like two rivers coming together. And, you know, at first there's a little turbulence and a little, you know, she doesn't put things back the way you put things back or she, or he drops his clothes wherever he happens to take them off and and you know there's a, they're just all over the house and hanging on doorknobs and you're like what why can't you put it in the dirty clothes and you know there's all these little things that happen you have to adjust to each other in marriage we learn to be unselfish we learn to in honor prefer one another The number one tool I think God uses to shape us to be more like Christ is our spouse. I thank God for my wife because I think back at my own personality, temperament, ways of doing things. I would be in a whole lot of trouble if I didn't have her there saying, hold on, wait a minute, what are you doing? (laughs) I thank God. For that, you know what I found in marriage is that that one has strengths the other one doesn't have, and the other one has strengths that the other one doesn't have, and that's why we complement each other. That's why we complete each other. That together, we become whole. What is the sixth reason? Sixth purpose for a biblical marriage. It's for the reflection of our own personal union with Jesus Christ as our Savior. What do we mean by that? Marriage is a metaphor. It's a model of our relationship with our Lord. It shows, when we're doing it right, guys, it shows the world Christ's love for the church. When you're treating your wife the right way, when you're loving her the way that God says you're supposed to love her, it shows the world how much Jesus Christ loves his bride. Now, it starts off in Ephesians 5, and, and, and increasingly in the last few years, um, we have generations of, of ladies who've grown up in a whole different American culture, and when I start reading from Ephesians 5, they get real nervous at first because it says this, for the wives, this means submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I oftentimes see the wife kind of, I mean, the potential of the bride, potential bride kind of go like, Submit to that yahoo like I would God? Are you kidding me? What is that all about? This is so archaic. This can't be true, right? This can't be right. Submit to my husband as under the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Wait a minute. We, we don't have any heads. In it. We, we're, we're both in charge. And he is the Savior of the body, the church. I can take care of myself. As the church submits to Christ, so the wife should submit to your husband and everything. And, and, and it's not popular in today's culture. But for those, how many verses? One, two, three. For those three, four verses. No, for those three verses, guys, are you ready for this? You've got about nine or ten. For the husband, it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, I take that seriously. I love my wife. I try to love my wife as much as Christ loved the church. And I would give my life for her. I wouldn't have to think about it. I wouldn't have to pray about it. I wouldn't have to ask some group, what do you think I ought to do about it? I would give my life for her in a moment. And you may be saying the same, yeah, I would too. How about this then? If you would give your life for her and die for her, how about living for her? 
How about making her the most important person in your life? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she should be holy and without fault. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No man ever yet ever hates his own body but feeds it and cares for it as Christ does the church. And survival, self-preservation is one of the strongest human drives there is. People have survived incredible things because they just wouldn't die. They, they ate whatever they, had to, they could find out in the wilderness after some kind of a plane crash or whatever. And they did what they could to survive. Because the drive to survive is important. And God's word says, love her as much as you love your own life. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, uh, say, a man leaves his father and mother, joined unto his wife. The two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration. It's an illustration. It's a picture. It's a metaphor of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, Paul says, that a man must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife see that she respect her husband. So I put my wife on a pedestal. I do. I try to. She is special to me. I open doors for her. I, I try to do nice things for her. Why? Because I'm such a good guy? No, because I'm trying to be like Christ is to the church. And I don't want to just say I'll die for her. I want to say I'm living for her. And ladies, I think... If you take those last nine verses or so that I just read and you compare them to, I think the first three become a whole lot more palatable. And I think it's a whole lot easier to to go ahead and swallow those if the guy's doing what God's Word tells him to do. And this purpose is the deepest meaning, I think, the most profound purpose, the strongest reason why a marriage can only be between a man and a woman. There is no other relationship that can picture this intimate union. To redefine marriage is to cave on something that is all important. I don't know about you, but marriage, um, you know, it's, it, I always told people it's like this. God comes first. But with God coming first, I don't think my wife and kids come in second and third. I don't think, that's not the way I see it. When God is first in my life, my wife and kids are right there. Because God commands me. To take care of them. In fact, I can become disqualified for ministry if I don't take care of my wife and my children. And I tag on grandchildren there because in the Bible there was no word for grandchildren. It was children and children's children. So I put, if I put God first, my wife and my children and grandchildren come right there. And so they're everything. They're the most important thing to me. I, I, want, I want to finish strongly so that I'm not an embarrassment to God. I'm not an embarrassment to my wife. I'm not an embarrassment to my children, grandchildren. I'm not an embarrassment to the church. That's my goal. That's my desire. So in heaven, Jesus taught there's no marriage. There's no marriage in heaven where it'll be like the angels. Why is that, I wonder? Well, in heaven, we won't be lonely. He'll always be there. We'll not need bonding. 
we will not be reproducing. We'll not need protection and education for our children. They'll be protected. They'll be fully educated by the Lord. We'll not need to perfect our character because we will become like him. And we'll not need the metaphor of marriage because we'll have the reality. I hope this is not unscriptural. But Pat and I hope that our mansions in heaven are next door to each other <laughs> so that we can visit each other. Christians, we live in tough times. We live in weird times. You listen to what the world says about marriage, and you're going to be messed up. So a Christian must never give up, must never give in, must never give out. We must stand for what's true. So what about people who disagree with us? Well, as always, we should be merciful to those who disagree, merciful and kind. But we should be stalwart. We should be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Show grace to the struggling. Be patient to the doubting. But when God's word is clear, we must not, we cannot back down, back up, back off, or backslide. Church must never, ever be captivated by the fickle culture or manipulated by critics or motivated by applause or frustrated by problems or debilitated by distractions or intimidated by evil. We must keep running the race with our eyes on the prize, on the goal, who is Jesus Christ, even though people are shouting from the sidelines, hey, last week, Fans were booing the Chargers. You may, you may have people booing you, but you've got to do what God tells us to do. So keep running the race. Be spirit-led. Be purpose-driven. Be mission-focused. So we cannot be bought, we will not be compromised, and we will not quit until we finish the race. Now, I'm going to tell you something. When you do things God's way, your marriage can be heaven. Bow your heads, please. Would you reflect on that for a minute? When we do things God's way, your marriage can be a little bit of heaven on earth. I'm going to pray, and we're going to have an invitation. And the invitation is open to anybody who wants to come and receive Christ as their Savior, wants to come and become a member of the church, wants to come and present yourself as a candidate for baptism. But I'm going to ask you to do something else, too, if God should lead you. I'm going to ask you to, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you to take your wife's or your husband's hand, maybe, and maybe slip your arm around them. Maybe somehow let them know that in this time of invitation, in this time of committing to the Lord, that we are recommitting to the person God has called to be our spouse and that we'll try even harder to be the biblical metaphor that we find in Ephesians chapter 5. Our Father in heaven, in your wisdom, in your creative ability, in your provision for us to meet all of our needs, you prescribed and defined marriage 
and you gave us your truth to tell us how it ought to work. Father, for those who have failed in the past, thank God you have a remedy for that. It's called forgiveness, and none of us can go back and relive anything in the past, but all of us can go forward from this day on. I pray, God, that we would confess our failures to you. We would confess our sinfulness to you. We would confess our infidelities to you. We would confess our problems to you and give them to you. And those of us that are married would recommit with fervor to our husband or wife to be the spouse that you would have us to be according to your word. For those who will be married one day, God bless, lead them, protect them from unhealthy relationships. If they're in one now that's not healthy, God show them that. If, they're, if that, that potential marriage is, is scripturally faulty and in error, may you give them the wisdom to choose your way and not theirs. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?